Will you join me in prayer? God, meet us here in this place. Speak to us through your word. May my words, may the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There was a cool story I found about Napoleon. I'd actually not heard this before. It was during the invasion of Russia, and he had somehow been separated from his men, and he was actually spotted by his enemies, the Russian Cossacks, and they chased him through these winding streets. And as he was running for his life, he eventually ducked into a furrier's shop. Anyone know what a furrier is? Yes. Yeah, a fur tr- like a fur trader. Somebody, I, didn't, I actually didn't know that. Um, he was gasping for air. He was out of breath. At the same time, he's begging this shopkeeper to save him. And so the furrier said, quick, hide under this big pile of furs in the corner. And he actually took furs and he threw more and more on top of Napoleon to try to cover him up. And no sooner had he covered him up and finished this process when the Russian Cossacks burst into the shop demanding to know where Napoleon was. And so the furrier denied seeing him. He didn't know what they were talking about. Despite the protest, these guys, they tear his shop upside down. They took out their swords. They stabbed their swords and ran them through every pile of furs. After some time passed, they left. They didn't find him. Napoleon kind of climbs out from under this pile of furs, unharmed. And the furrier asked Napoleon, he said, Excuse me for asking this question of such a great man. But he asked him, what was it like being under those furs, knowing that the next moment could be your last? Napoleon, of course, known for his temper, becomes indignant. How dare you ask such a question of the emperor Napoleon? Immediately, he orders his guards to blindfold the man and execute him. They dragged him out of the shop, blindfolded him, placed him up against the wall. The furrier could see nothing, but he could hear the guards shuffling into a line and preparing their rifles. Then they heard Napoleon call out, ready. And he said it was in this moment that the shopkeeper could hardly describe in words the feelings that welled up inside of him. He said that tears were pouring down his cheeks, and then he heard aim. And suddenly, the blindfold was ripped from his eyes. He was blinded by the light, and all of five foot six, the great Napoleon stood before him, face to face, well, sort of, (laughs) face to face. And Napoleon said to him, now you have the answer to your question. To really know, to really understand, some things in life have to be experienced. And so we're going to look at one of these really unusual experiences today, this miraculous transfiguration, as we call it, of Jesus. Peter, James, and John are actually going to experience something so amazing, so unexplainable, that Jesus is actually going to instruct them to not say anything about it until after his death and resurrection. Probably because without the resurrection, how could you possibly understand this really strange event that we're going to take a look at. It may be nearly impossible to put into words, but that hasn't stopped me from trying before, so it won't today. Here we are, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led 
them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice that said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. And so six days after Jesus shares with his disciples about his impending death and resurrection, he takes this inner circle, these three disciples up high on a mountain for this really special experience. Many of the great biblical experiences took place on mountaintops. Steve read uh, one from uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus delivers his famous Sermon on the Mount, obviously, on a mountain. And here, possibly on a mountain called Mount Tabor, we hear about this transfiguration of the Lord. And so, uh, this is what it that's what it looks like. It's this kind of large, round hill in central Galilee. From the top, you can actually see uh, the entire uh, view of Galilee below. And so today, if you want to go to the top of this mountain, you actually have to take a taxi cab to get there. And so what they say is that uh, God is especially pleased with Mount Tabor taxi drivers. <laughs> Because they say that more praying happens in these taxis going up and down the windy, narrow road than takes place during the rest of the week. And so exactly who Jesus is in God's mind is made gloriously known to Peter, to James, and John on top of probably, most likely, this mountain. And all of us are invited with eyes of faith to see Uh, we're kind of invited to see Jesus as he really is. And so here we see the radiance of Jesus' face. And I find it fascinating that the ancient rabbis of the Jewish tradition, they taught that Adam's face had lost its radiance when he first sinned, but that the Messiah would come and restore that radiance. And so with this story, we get to see What Jesus was on the inside manifests itself externally. And this is why we can say Jesus truly is the light of the world. In the transfiguration, we see Jesus from the inside out. What a gift this must have been to these three guys. Can you imagine this experience? What a gift it is to the church that we're allowed this glimpse at exactly who God himself treasured Jesus, the Son, to be. Jesus' face, it said, shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Now, people often suggest that uh, Jesus was shining so brightly because he was divine. And without this experience, his divinity might have otherwise remained a secret. There's something to this. 
But it doesn't explain the whole story, at least in my mind, because in Luke's account of the same story, Moses and Elijah, they're kind of glowing too. So what does that mean? I think there's something else going on here. I actually think it's also about Peter's all-too-human conversation with Jesus that kind of illuminates the other half of what's going on in this story. And so Christians maintain Jesus' divinity for sure, but they also refuse to let go of Jesus' full humanity. These, uh, there's kind of a puzzling tension here for sure because the early Christians, they would always point us to Jesus' suffering. They would always point to the cross in order to see Jesus' full divinity. All right? And I think this is what Matthew is doing here, and I'll explain. We know that Peter is a man of action. Those of us who are familiar with him, we know he's also kind of a renowned jabberjaw. He flapped his gums at any chance he got. Here is no exception. Now, you want to give him a little bit of credit. He tries really, really hard. And so, he doesn't always get it right. But once again, here he speaks when he's supposed to be listening. Peter, blown away by this kind of outrageous experience, he wants desperately to do something for Jesus. And so he breaks one of our kind of key social rules, a rule that our parents taught us when we were really little, never interrupt people when they're having a conversation. And so I found this little cartoon. (laughs) My employer is paying for the surgery. I'm having a speed bump installed between my brain and my mouth. (laughs) This is exactly what Peter needs, right? He needs a speed pump surgically placed between his brain and his mouth in order to slow him down. Can you imagine being present in this situation and watching Peter actually have the audacity to interrupt a conversation between this dazzling white Jesus and the great prophets Moses and Elijah? Who does this guy think he is? God is speaking and Peter interrupts God. That can't be good. It's got to be dangerous. Peter's in such a hurry to advise Jesus that he can't even wait until Jesus' conversation is finished. He jumps from rudely interrupting to this grand plan, this building project that he has in his mind. In his brain, he's got the plan. He's got the blueprints all made out. He wants to honor and commemorate this event. But what exactly does he imagine that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are going to do up on Mount Tabor for what? The rest of their lives in these shelters that he built them? Not only is it strange, his response, but it's also really impractical. I mean, he's not building vacation homes for Jesus, you know? Here's what most Bible scholars believe is going on. This is the second time in six days that Peter has tried to do something good for Jesus, but failed. Just six days previously, he had tried to both physically and spiritually stand in the way of Jesus' mission. Jesus had just finished telling his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer, that he must die, and that he must be raised from the dead. Peter actually walks out from behind Jesus, stands in front of him, I imagine Peter putting his hands on the front of Jesus' shoulders. And he says, no, this must never happen to you. 
Jesus actually had to put Peter back in line. The proper place for the disciple is always back in line. Following Jesus, not getting out front in order to lead. And so Peter seems to be up to the same old tricks, trying for a second time to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Maybe if Jesus just hangs out in this shelter that I build in with Moses and Elijah, he'll forget all about this Jerusalem <laughs> cross nonsense. I think this is what's going through his mind. And so while Peter had interrupted God's conversation, God now interrupts Peter. It's supposed to be a little funny. It's Bible humor. It's not that funny. Um, <laughs> but it's a little bit funny. God can't even wait for the long-winded Peter to finish his foolish speech. And so the bright cloud envelops them, it says, and the voice of God's, God's voice has to actually drown out Peter's own. It's a little bit funny. This cloud symbolizing God's presence, it's unique to Matthew's gospel, but it wasn't unique in the Hebrew Bible in the Steve. That's why we had Steve read that from the lectionary. Um, a, little, a little tie in there. So we've, we've heard this before. And we've heard these words before, and they should sound vaguely familiar. They're almost the exact same words that God speaks at Jesus' baptism. And the voice says, this is my son, beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And then he adds a little thing at the end. It says, listen to me. Jesus is God's only priceless son, the flesh and blood, the one who expresses God's heart. And so the prophet Isaiah had written this. He wrote where the Lord says to his anointed, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, with whom my soul is deeply pleased. Israel had been waiting for the anointed one, the Messiah, and here he is in Jesus. But the key here is what Peter could not accept. Isaiah also said that this suffering servant, this Messiah, he would suffer greatly. And so we remember that this suffering servant would bear our infirmities. I mean, these words may ring a bell from those who recognize these passages and carry our diseases. That this innocent would suffer on behalf of those who are guilty. And so whether consciously or subconsciously, Peter said no to the thought that the Messiah might suffer and die on behalf of others. He would rather Jesus find another way. Well, this is the genius of the gospel writer. We have the glory of God shining here like never before, but we also have this looming contrast of the cross. And I think what Matthew is trying to do is to say that if you're going to reflect on the glory of Jesus, don't forget to reflect on the cross. I love what theologian N.T. Wright said about this. He wrote this nice little contrast paragraph. He wrote, Here on a mountain is Jesus revealed in glory. There on a hill outside Jerusalem is Jesus revealed in shame. Here his clothes are shining white. There they've been stripped off, and soldiers have gambled for them. Here he's flanked by Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes. There he's flanked by two thieves. Here a bright-colored cloud overshadows the scene. There darkness comes upon the land. 
Here Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is. There he's hiding in shame after denying that he even knows Jesus. Here the voice of God himself declares that that this is his wonderful son. There a pagan soldier declares in surprise that this really was God's son. So maybe we need both the transfiguration and the crucifixion to help explain each other. We put them side by side, we might begin to see that not only was Jesus' glory revealed on Mount Tabor, but also on Calvary's hill. And so I think there's a few things we can take away from this strange, extraordinary event. First, that this story is a gift. It reveals Jesus from the inside out. It reveals the heart. It reveals the love that the Father has for his only beloved Son. And because Matthew shared this story with us, we too get to experience it a little bit in part. Jesus Christ, the light and the hope of the world. And so like that Napoleon story, some things in life have to be experienced to be fully understood and appreciated. But the gift of this story gives us the next best thing to being there. And so I'm thankful that the gospel writers shared this treasure with us. So many people have had kind of experiences with Jesus that changed their life. And if I was thinking about kind of a list of some of the true geniuses that we've seen in this world over the years, Blaise Pascal would certainly be one of the people at the top of my list. He only lived 39 years. He made some scientific discoveries, which are still pretty basic to our uh, great uh, amount of most significant contemporary knowledge that we have even today. And so he was raised in the heyday of enlightenment thinking with thinkers like Voltaire and Descartes, for those of you who have taken the philosophy 101, um, where they fashioned this worldview out of reason. And Pascal said that reason is inadequate. It doesn't explain everything. And so he wrote that reason's last step is the recognition that there are an infinite number of things which are beyond it. The heart has its reasons, which reason does not know at all. And so it was this statement that was kind of his starting point for the defense of the Christian faith. He wrestled with spirituality, the dichotomy between the world and God, and on this one particular evening in Uh, November of 1654, he had this definitive conversion type of experience. And it was just past midnight, and he wrote these words because he felt the reality of Jesus Christ in such an intense way that he actually wrote these words down in a piece of parchment. And they say, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and savants. I think this part's really interesting. He wrote certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ. And he copied these words onto a piece of parchment and he sewed them onto the lining of his jacket. Eight years later, when he died, his servant found the jacket and the parchment and these words inscribed on him that he carried around with him every single day for eight years. My guess, when I read those words, is that he experienced something like Peter, James, and John did that day on Mount Tabor, something so unforgettable that it altered the course of his life. 
And so to me, this story is also a gift because it reveals the ways in which we too can resist suffering, resist the way of the cross. Peter and his eagerness to do something for Jesus, to give Jesus some advice like he knew better, it only intrudes where he was supposed to be still. He does something when he's supposed to be listening. You know, it makes me think a little bit. Maybe we too can get a little busy doing things for Jesus and saying things for Jesus that we miss the command of the loving Father. At the end, God says, listen to him. Listen to him. And so the response that God desires of the faithful isn't always to say or to do, but rather to listen. To listen in Scripture is actually pretty simple. It almost always means to hear something and be obedient, to obey. And so listen first, and only then go and do what he says. To listen is to trust, to follow, even down the path of suffering. Listening to Jesus may start here, within these walls, in worship, in the church, but it always ends up out there. It always ends up beyond these walls, which is why at Lightshine we call ourselves a gathered and scattered people. We gather together for worship, we listen for God's voice in his word, and then we're sent out into our communities for the sake of God's mission in the world. And I love this ending. When the three disciples lifted up their eyes, Moses and Elijah were gone, and only Jesus remained. He's saying that Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus is enough. Only Jesus remains, and only Jesus remains. 